Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. All right. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you tuned in today with us. I'm excited. By the way, Tom Ord, we I just released the interview I did with you last week, Tom, on the uh, death of omnipotence. Excellent. And so uh, for our for our regular supporters, um, I have done a always do that uh, little uh, off off the interview on the, all the crazy questions or the silly questions. So people can check that out. I'm not going to do that this time because this will be your third time on spirituality adventure. So, you now the most uh, interviewed guest that I've ever had. All right. Uh, I'm honored. So um, yeah. And I've only, you know, I've done this a little over two years. So over a hundred interviews that we've released and uh, this will be the third one with Tom and my first one with Alexa, Tom's daughter. So thank you, Alexa, for joining us. Uh, yeah. Glad to be here. Yeah. So some of our folks can, can listen to Tom's long story. The first interview I did, we probably spent 15 minutes getting Tom's background and all that kind of stuff. But uh, um, Alexa, why don't you give us a quick um, uh, introduction to yourself and uh, kind of where you a uh, quick, where you grew up and, you know, kind of your, your, your route to where you're at now. What, how you. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, was mostly raised in Idaho, um, where my um, parents still live now. Um, and then I moved out east to for college and grad school. And now I live in New York City, um, in Brooklyn, where I work in um, student affairs at Columbia University. Um, I also have a gender uh, a master's degree in gender studies, which is part of you know my involvement in this project. And, um, I'm a queer person and I have left the church. I'm not spiritual or religious. Well, we'll, we'll decide whether or not I'm spiritual. I'm sure, <laughs> but I'm not formally religious in any way. So that also sort of brings a different sort of perspective to this project. Okay. All right. Well, my, my podcast is called spirituality adventures and how I define spirituality is connection with self connection with others and connection with something greater than ourselves. So I bet you're, spirit. I can describe to that <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but uh, yeah, so that's what I wanted to first start off with the, the interview for those who are listening, those you're watching, you can see the uh, backdrop that uh, both Tom and Alexa have for the new book that just came out. And the title is why the church of the Nazarene should be fully LGBTQ plus affirming. And I would just rename it and say why the church should be fully LGBTQ plus affirming. But uh, yeah, but uh, let's first start by uh, at what, what got both of you into this project and why now? Maybe I'll start and then Alexa, you can pick up. 
Um, sure thing. I've been thinking about these issues for you know a long time. Thirty plus years ago, I changed my mind on these issues. But I'm an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, which is a pretty conservative uh, or uh, denomination with a Wesleyan or Methodist kind of theology. And people in the denomination, generally speaking, weren't ready to have any serious conversation about queer issues. So I made a decision earlier on in my life that I was going to uh, try to help people think through these issues in a way that would be less public, work with my students and others. Um, that uh, was somewhat successful, but I always felt a little weird about that in that I wasn't um, I couldn't be at the front lines of the kind of discussion. But then in 2015, I lost my job as a theologian at one of the Nazarene universities. And um, that's a whole nother story. But that meant that I could change my strategy and how I talk about queer issues. And I began uh, talking very publicly in podcasts. That got me in trouble. And eventually, um, formal charges were placed against me in 2019 or no, not 2019, 20, let's see, got to get my 2021. There we go. Um, 2021. And that led to a hearing uh, in which I had to answer questions related to queer issues. And I gave a defense saying the denomination ought to change. Um, the result of that hearing was that I was not disciplined, but I did have some uh, um uh, roles taken away from me. And I started thinking, okay, maybe I should write a book. I've been long, I've thought a long time about writing books since I, it's one of the things I do as a theologian. And I was thinking about a monograph. And then I thought, you know, it, for a number of reasons, there might be an advantage to having an edited book. And that's when I approached Alexa with the possibility that she and I co-edited a book uh, of current and former members of the Church of the Nazarene who would identify as affirming. So, Alexa, you want to pick it up from there? Sure. Yeah. So Tom reached out to me in the fall of last year or so about this book, um, and I, you know, thought it was a really great idea and a great sort of merging of our world, you know, we've worked on some, some theological and academic books in the past, but me bringing my sort of gender studies background into this and Tom with his, you know, connections to the church seemed like a really good sort of uh, meeting of worlds. Um, so we started <laughs> reaching out to people and at first we only, you know, we're hoping for 40 or 50 um, participants, but uh, it was shocking how much as we sort of sent out the call for participants, they then forwarded that email to their other friends and on and on and on. So that now I would say maybe only a third or so of the contributors were people that we like initially knew. Um, and then the rest are all, you know, people we've met through this process. Um, and then at the end of the day, we ended up with 90 essays. <laughs> it's a real, it's a honking book. It's almost 500 pages. Um, and in organizing them, we, we didn't set out with this sort of, uh, structure, but we ended up with sort of three camps. So it starts out with, uh, queer voices. And then the next section is, uh, ally narratives and then scholarly perspectives. So we ended up really coming up with a wide breadth of stories and, uh, experiences and, 
positions as far as their own relationship to the church. You know, some people are still part of the church, some people have left, but we really wanted to showcase the diversity of experiences of people who all call themselves affirming. Yeah. You know, as she's talking, I'm, I'm, it's hitting me once again, just how um, amazing it is that from conception to having a book in our hands was like five months. And we're working with almost oh, 90 wow. contributors. So, wow. you know, talk about administrative juggling. Yeah. Doing, Alexa did, did most of the actual editing. I did most of the administrative and correspondence. But uh, it's just amazing that today you can start from zero and have a book in five months <laughs> and have 90 participants. Wow, <laughs> that's impressive. Man. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so. The first section is queer voices. It's about, I, I can't remember, like about 19 stories there, 18, 19 stories. Um, the second section, Ally Narratives, has almost 40 or so um, stories of, of people who uh, express solidarity with the LGBTQ plus community and then, but who aren't LGBTQ plus, but sometimes parents of LGBTQ, right? That kind of thing. And then um, the, the, the last section is about what, 20 articles, maybe close to it uh, from a, a scholarly perspective. And it could be on sociological issues, biblical issues, science issues, pastoral issues, that kind of thing, church issues even. <laughs> so it's a, it's a great uh, book, especially I think for for people who um, are in the church world, most of these folks are Nazarene. So you, you warranted having Nazarene in the title, right? Um, I noticed there was a, there was a Methodist or two floating around in there. And uh, uh, I don't know, but most, most are had some kind of connection to the Nazarene world, right? Is that, I think all of them did. Some of them are former Nazarenes who are now Methodists or Lutherans or something else, but I think all of them, yeah. But just I've never been a Nazarene, never been a Methodist. I grew up Southern Baptist and I was a vineyard pastor for 30 years. And now I'm now I'm going through a process of getting standing in the disciples of Christ. And uh, this is as relevant for any denomination in America, in my opinion. Um, so I'd encourage everybody to jump in and read it. And especially those who are still struggling with the issue and, you know, wondering about it. Um We'll, we'll get into this more, but I, I do think there's a lot of good hearted evangelicals who believe in God's grace and love in a big way. And if you if you give them enough time to think about it and enough good ideas uh, to work in their brains, they can move on this issue mm-hmm. as Tom and I have done. So mm-hmm. I'd say like, hey, Tom, if you and I can change, anybody can change. There you go. And I'm, I'm older than Tom. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm. I'm 62. Can we talk age just a minute here? Because I do think the age thing <laughs> plays into this a little bit, right? In terms yeah. of sociolo- uh, the sociology of this issue. Um, I'm 62. Tom, you're what? 50? Um, 56. 56. 57. 57. Seven. Oh, the math. Yeah, I'm 57. I'm 27. So you're you're 57. That's how that works. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> okay. All right. 27. So we've got uh, two generations here, which which are in, which are interesting. How the generations break when we get to sociology. I'm gonna 
So I first want to uh, ask you a couple questions about the queer voices and the ally narratives, but then I want to get into, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the sociological perspective, the biblical pastoral perspective and the science perspective. So we'll, we'll leave more time for those things, but the, on, in terms of the queer voices, um, does, does one of these stories stand out to either of you? I know they're all great stories. You wouldn't have put them in there if not, but do, is there one that particularly hit close to your heart out of the, out of the queer voices? Yeah, I think, uh, sorry, Tom, I'm going to take, uh, for Go what for might perhaps be your answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there are, uh, a, a couple of essays in there, um, by, a father and a daughter and then they they each wrote individual essays and then they wrote a joint essay that was like framed as an interview um about how the daughter um allison came out to her dad as queer and he really wanted to be affirming and you know really struggled with it and the way he's now affirming and there it, it sort of documents how they have rebuilt their relationship together sort of both working through this really hard moment together um to get to where they are now which is you know still painful but still very much connected and um um and dedicated to each other and we had just such an amazing moment uh we did an online conference for this book featuring a handful of the contributors and we had allison and um and her father um speak and it was just so moving at, you know, at some point I, I was the one facilitating that night. I just sort of sat back and let them talk to each other. And it was just incredible to see how, how authentic and raw they were with sharing their perspective and how real it is that even when you're, you know, you have come to an affirming place, there's still a lot of heartache there. And they were both sort of recognizing where each other were at and especially, you know, hosting that conference and writing this book with my own father. It just was really, really special to see, uh, to hear the stories of, of families, uh, committed to working through things, even if it's hard. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Good. When I look, I've been, I'm looking at the uh, list there, man, there's so many good stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, the majority of people in the queer section, uh, identifies female and are lesbians or bi, um, and, I think that's interesting. We don't, we have some uh, who are gay, some men, but I think maybe I'll point out one of the exceptions in this first section. And that is someone who identifies as asexual. So usually the conversation is same sex attraction or, you know, multiple sex attraction. In this particular instance, this person says she's not, she doesn't have the same kind of sexual attractions that people have. Um, and that I hadn't really thought a lot about that, to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, I've thought about the trans issues. I've thought about people who are dealing with, uh, you know, their attract their diverse attractions. But for someone who doesn't feel a strong sexual attraction for someone and how that affects their, uh, in her case, her uh, marriage, uh, I not really thought that through very much. And that was a, a powerful essay for me because it forced me to think in new ways about the diversity underneath that queer uh, banner. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Well, that's a whole nother, you know, because of my own story, I, Alexa, I was married 37 years and then I've, I've been divorced almost four years, but, um, and, but, through, through this experiences, I went 
through in my marriage, um, that issue is interesting to me. Yeah. I think about 10% of the marriages uh, in America and Europe, I don't know if these statistics apply to other places, maybe even a little higher than 10% are sexless. Interesting. No sex. And uh, there was a psychologist I heard do a TED talk on sexless marriages and uh, very struck is very intriguing to me based on my, uh, my, my experience as a young evangelical. Yeah. Good young. Yeah. And I think, (laughs) (laughs) I think that that thinking about asexuality and how the church sort of recognizes it is so important to sort of add nuance to our understanding of, of marriage and relationships and sex within a Christian context, because in our conversations with people, you know, who are not affirming or, you know, on the fence or, uh, currently our denomination is trying to, uh, nail down its exact language about, um, marriage and homosexuality. So often it's about God has ordained that you must marry. Like it's a natural thing to be, uh, married in a sexual relationship in that's heterosexual. And if we add a more diverse, colorful, nuanced understanding of how sexuality can look from including sexualities that includes lack of sexuality, I think that that really makes us reckon with, we, it can't be that black and white anymore. You know, it's just, it doesn't fit with our actual experience. Yeah. Absolutely. I've been Um, also thinking about, you know, Alex and I had a conversation several weeks ago, maybe even a month ago with an individual and we got to speculating and we started thinking about Jesus and whether or not Jesus had sexual attractions. And um, I don't remember the specifics about it, but we were we were, you know, if Jesus is just like a regular person, then wouldn't we think Jesus has sexual attractions? He was maybe he was attracted to women, men by, you know, obviously saying anything other than women is going to make many people uncomfortable, but just saying Jesus had sexual attractions makes some people uncomfortable. But the alternative is that he didn't have sexual attractions. Therefore, he would be asexual. Therefore, he'd be a part of the <laughs> queer community. So it's it's a really strange sort of set of issues when we think about this Jesus person who is described as fully human and fully divine and what kind of sexual attractions he might have had. Mm. Yeah, that's a fascinating I always thought it wouldn't have been cool if, if Mary would have had twins, one boy, one girl. And then, uh, you know, we could have had all kinds of conversations. <laughs> <Anyway. laughs> all right. So the ally narratives um, are people who, who a lot of them were not people who were originally affirming. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then moved to that position because of. What, what, what was the big factor that moved people from non-affirming to affirming? Yeah, absolutely. The, one of the most common reasons why people become affirming is because they know a close, a close friend or family member who is queer and from learning from their stories and their experience, they change their minds. I will also add just to sort of, you know, make sure we're covering our bases here that uh, there are some folks in, or essays in the allies section that are written by queer people who couldn't be publicly out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's important to keep in mind or folks who 
um, our parents of queer children who maybe were affirming already or, you know, or friends, they were affirming already, but just wanted to share their stories. But it is true that such a huge portion of our book and of, you know, just experiences in the world come from close relationship with queer people that ultimately changes their mind. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that, that kind of jumps me into the sociological component of this. You know, if you think about, and you brought it out in the book or one of your authors did that there's been no other issue like this in American history that's moved so quickly in terms of perspective. Um, If you think about California in 2008 passing prop eight, and I think Rick Warren was a big proponent of prop eight, right? I don't know if you remember that or not, Tom. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, literally got a, a vote in California to ban same-sex marriages, but then no. quickly overturned by the California Supreme Court. Um, but just to think about that was 2008. And in your sociological, uh, one of the articles there in 2010, 29% of Americans supported same-sex marriages. 2021. 79% of Americans support same-sex marriage. There's been no issue in over 200 years of American history that's changed so quickly when it comes to uh, sort of a, a social, psychological, say, moral issue, uh, if you want to call it that, um, in, in the history of America. And I'd like to posit something there that yeah, uh, as someone who is definitely not educated on church tradition and history or, and like, you know, this is really coming from an inexpert perspective, but maybe either of you can, can supplement here with some cold, hard facts. (laughs) I wonder if, if part of the, part of the reason that that drastic change was able to happen so quickly was because the shift within the church to have such a blatantly homophobic stance itself was very quick. Um, thinking about sort of the, you know, this recent movie, 1947, that's the right date? 42, I think it is. I think it's 42. Um, in, in which the, um, we taught, one of the essays discusses in the book, the translation of the Bible uh, that first introduced the word homosexuality was a mistranslation. Um, and the way that they sort of track that as the beginning of a real concerted effort on the church as an institution to, uh, you know, become pass more blatantly homophobic laws, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder if from the beginning, uh, the, the advent of this really, really conservative homophobic church itself was sort of not quite in alignment with the history of the church and what it actually felt. And so as soon as we really started deconstructing and thinking through where this came from in the past, you know, 20, 30 years, we're thinking, wait, 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 this doesn't have quite as much of a leg to stand on. We can toss out this sort of bad theology. Do we think that actually aligns with history? (laughs) I don't know. That's a good question. You know, I don't know. That's a great question, Alexa, because, you know, growing up Southern Baptist, uh, and, you know, I was going to jump into this here in a minute, but, you know, it was just, it was just like in the air. It was just like, yeah, well, that's a sin. And we didn't really talk about it much, you know, but it was a sin. If we did talk about it, it was a sin. yeah. And then we didn't know any, anybody that was in that community hardly, or at least, you know, when I was going to high school in the seventies, um, nobody came out in the seventies in my high school. Now, since then, a few of my friends did come out, but 
in the seventies, they wouldn't, they would have been scared to death to come out, you know? Um, so yeah, that's a great question. We'll, we'll have to. We'll yeah. Have, I'd be curious to yeah. talk. I mean, I think that, I think that queer scholarship has done a lot of work in recent years to sort of track that queer people have always existed and sort of uncover mm-hmm. the ways that sort of gender play and diverse sexual identities have existed throughout time in very, maybe ways that we don't recognize anymore. Um, or, you know, as, as they are presented to us. So I'd be curious to talk to, you know, some, somebody in a church in the 1850s and see if they, I mean, sure, they're probably, you know, following the biblical teachings against homosexuality, but did they have that same sort of visceral, like you're talking about that, oh, being gay is bad and sinful. It's just sort of in the air. I wonder, I mean, yeah. we can't know, but <laughs> I bet it would uh, just like today, I bet it would depend on the cultures. You know, I bet in India, for instance, I bet Indian Christians were probably more uh, accepting than, um, you know, African Christians, let's say, since today, African Christians seem to have some of the most stringent laws against queer uh, behavior. Uh, So I wouldn't be surprised if it was even culturally based 150 years ago. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, let's jump into the biblical pastoral, uh, world. This is, this is a fascinating, I'm going to in, interject some of my world and Tom, you, I'm curious, this is interesting to me. This, I'm so glad Alexa's here as well, but you know, I, so Alexa, I, I was doing drugs in the seventies and then got saved at a Southern Baptist youth camp, felt called to be a pastor and went, went off to Baylor university. And then, and I went to Baylor from 79 to 83. This was before the Southern Baptists had their big conservative takeover. And all of my religion professors at Baylor were classical liberals. I was reading Schleimacher, Tillich, Bultmann. <laughs> I was reading Tom and you, you know, this Tom. I was reading Whitehead and Hartshorn. Wow. But I'd been <laughs> saved and uh, you know, they were saying that they weren't, you know, they didn't, weren't believing in supernatural stuff. They were thoroughgoing modernists, you know, and I was pretty sure I had a demon and got saved and got rid of one, you know, and when I got saved and all that anyway, so that's a bit of a joke, but, but um, then when I went to Southwestern Baptist theological seminary, 83 to 87, Russell Dilday was the president. He was a moderate. I didn't have any professors at Southwestern that were inerrantists. Really? They, they were all very, cons- I would still say high views of scripture, but not an erratist. Yeah. They got, they all got kicked out by the end of the eighties, early nineties. That's when the full swing of the conservative take over the Southern Baptists. But um, one of the things that I have come to the conclusion of is that in through my own experience as well, is that I bought into a shame based sexual ethic getting saved in the Southern Baptist world. And the the ethic was this, God made sex. And if you're in a heterosexual marriage, you can do it. But if you're not in a heterosexual marriage, you can't do it. And you can't think about it (laughs) because the way I was taught about lust and masturbation and all that kind of stuff was that it was sinful. Like to have a sexual thought was sinful. So guess what? I felt guilty every day of my whole damn life as a <laughs> pastor and then became an evangelical megachurch pastor. And I tried to wrap that turd up in as much grace as I could. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I realized 
now I realize it was just a turd. <laughs> yeah. Sorry for the, I, I, I hope that's not too graphic for the, to my audience, you know, whatever. Anyway, but, um, yeah. So when I became a pastor in the nineties in vineyard, we wanted to reach people outside the church. So I actually had, and we were welcoming to everybody, including LGBTQ plus people, but we didn't have a clue what to do with them. I'd never even had the conversation. Yeah. And we had, we've had, we had LGBTQ people in my church. I welcomed them and they served and were active, but they couldn't, I couldn't have done a, a gay wedding and I, and they couldn't be in like pastoral leadership. Right. And in the nineties, Exodus international was going, mm. so this is a Christian gay con- conversion group that was headed up by quote, former gay people who most of them now <laughs> have come back out gay again. Right. Right. Yeah. But this is, this was the only, I, I would have guys come to my church who were some married, some weren't who were acting out sexually, like going to parks and doing hookups and, they felt guilty about it. Right. Some of them were married and doing that stuff. And like, we tried to help them. So we would connect them to ministries run by gay people, but that were conversion therapy. And there's a great movie that came out or a documentary called pray away. Have you seen that Alexa? No, but I'm very you should, interested. You should watch it because it, it, it goes through the history of Exodus international. And on, on my podcast, I've done over a hundred interviews. I've got at least 12 with people in the LGBTQ community. Almost all grew up in conservative religions, religious homes. All of them tried to pray the gay away, failed, hated themselves, hated themselves, but then finally just decided to quit, stop hating themselves, accept themselves, and then have moved into a much more... <laughs> wholehearted uh, embrace of life, their own sexuality and in loving relationships. So I, I, in the early, in the nineties wanted, I was glad LGBTQ people were in my church. I love them. I listened to their stories. We would get them into these things. They would, they would want help, right? They wanted to stop being gay. I wasn't trying to talk them into not being gay. They were just themselves doing that. And then it never worked. Like, like it, I can't think of one success story that lasted longer than a couple of two or three years. And then if you listen to those stories, it was agony. The the links that they went to, to try to pray the gay away was just mm-hmm. torturous and caused them to have shame and self-hatred toward themselves. Super unhealthy. So, and in the nineties, we were taught that, well, if you're gay, it's because you had bad parental bonding or you were sexually abused. And if you got healed of those things then you wouldn't be gay anymore. So I'm going to shut up now, but in the nineties, as a pastor who wanted to love everybody and wanted everybody to come to Jesus, because I thought that would help everybody. That was my perspective in the nineties, super loving, super welcoming, cared for the people, got to know them, but send them to these reparative therapy things. Ugh. Sorry, everybody. Anyway, I've had to go back and ask forgiveness for all those things. All the much other. But anyway, I'm going to let you uh, diesel on that a little bit because Alexa, you're 27. You probably didn't grow up in that environment. Like the, the environment that I just described in the nineties, right? That wasn't your experience. 
Definitely not. And, and our church, um, I don't know if there's a, if there's a large amount of Nazarenes that were sort of sent to conversion therapy. I wouldn't think so. Um, but at least the church I grew up in wasn't, didn't take that approach. It was much more just a sort of, we don't talk about it. We don't acknowledge that queerness exists. We don't, we, it's just, you know, homosexuality is a bad word. That's only whispered when, when, you know, on the rare occasion, someone, uh, shares their testimony again. Yes. Like how they were healed of their sin. And like, other than that, it just wasn't talked about. So I was really lucky. And then I grew up uh, in a completely affirming household and never felt, I didn't have to go through the whole conflict with your parents, which is something I, you know, is, is not common in the church and I'm really lucky. Um, but yes, I think also, um, to your point, and I'm sure Tom also, I feel like, uh, has a lot to say on this, <laughs> but the, the approach toward queer people in the church, that is, um, we love you, but what you're doing is sinful. I think is a place where a lot of people end up. And I think it's not sufficient. I think that it, number one, really sets up a hierarchy, you know, of, uh, it's very, uh, patronizing to say to someone, you know, Oh, well, I love you. But, you know, but you're, you're inherently flawed. You're inherently bad. Um, and uh, additionally, you can't, what do you do with those people? You know, if, if you, if somebody tells me that, oh, they love me, but everything about me is wrong. Well, number one, that just, I guess I'm just supposed to hate myself and never have sex for the rest of my life. Like that's just incredibly depressing. And no wonder <laughs> that people who are told that you know, have such high rates of, of other, you know, mental health concerns and suicidality, et cetera, down the road, because it's, I would say, and I'm sure Tom would love to pick on this. I would say that that approach is not actually loving. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I, I, I think it's funny that the people who would say to the queer person, we love you, but you have to practice abstinence. You have to be celibate. They themselves would not choose to sell a zero, at least most of them. <laughs> and I think that just makes no sense. <laughs> you know, I, I, as you were talking though, Alexa, I was thinking, you know, I grew up in a, my, my story is similar to Fred's. Uh, I grew up in the holiness tradition. So of course we had even stricter probably rules about morality and, uh, shame and guilt. And I still, just to be honest, I still wrestle with knowing what's shame and what's true guilt and that sort of stuff. Um, but I grew up on a farm and there was lots of sex on the farm. So we talked about the mechanics of sex, at least with the, the farm animals out there. Not that my dad ever gave me the sex, the birds and the bees talk. But as you know, Alexa, we talked about sex in our family when you were a ch child often, in fact, to the embarrassment of some of your friends <laughs> come over at dinner. <laughs> but do you remember, Alexa, uh, at church, there was like a girls go away and talk about sex retreat with, I can't remember what it was called, but I remember having really great reservations about this because I knew that the person who was taking the girls away would probably present a kind of purity culture view of sexuality. Did, did you end up going on any of those do you, or not? I don't remember. I mean, 
Yes, I uh, growing up in the church was a very unique exp- experience as a child of the Ord family <laughs> because we, you know, our we would we would on the way home from church have a little deconstruction session in which we talked about all our Sunday school lessons and whether or not we should really have what we think about those. But yeah, it, it's surprising to me that despite the fact that I grew up in such a sex positive family and it was so open and, and willing to talk about questions and just be frank in a way that's still prioritized, uh, you know, sex or no sex before marriage or whatever, like basically for, for people out there who think if you're going to be sex positive, it, the only way to do it is to teach your children that anything goes like my parents really (laughs) maintained their, their beliefs in how they framed it. Um, despite that, I mean, I still carried a ton amount of shame and of, of the purity culture that I just absorbed through church. And, you know, even, even if you try and push against that, it's, it's real hard to, to uh, shut that out. Yeah. Yeah. Out of all the people I've interviewed on my podcast in the LGBTQ plus community, all the people that grew up in religious homes had enormous shame and guilt around their own sexuality. And then, of course, as a heterosexual, because I because I wasn't supposed to think about sex, I did, too. Mm-hmm. So the one thing I found out is that, like, you know, I got a, You know, I I was in the Kansas City Star Sunday edition as a as a person who had morally failed sexually. <laughs> the whole world found out about it. And I was mm-hmm. like, I wanted I didn't care if I lived or died. I was so ashamed. Right. Yeah. My my LGBTQ plus friends came to my they loved me better than anybody in the midst of my own shame, not because of, you know, I, I had, I would say, you know, I committed adultery. I sinned, right. They didn't, (laughs) you know, I, I don't equate those two, but they understood the shame component. Mm. They, they loved me better than anybody. And I'm so grateful, you know? Um, But uh, I found uh, one of the interviews I did was a person who's a, a, a guy that, medical doctor umkc who's gay and he didn't grow up really in a religious environment he never had he never had really any guilt about it at all (laughs) i was like wow how wonderful (laughs) (laughs) and you know i think what's what's important yeah go ahead i'll go for it all the i'm just saying all these religious people just oh god we wrestle over the sex issue you know sexuality and sex and all and like, I don't know any Catholics or Southern Baptists who feel awesome about their sexuality. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like it's, it's not just, it's not just shame for queer people. Every person in the church is taught that sex is shameful. I remember um, in high school uh, or I guess it was after high school, but one of my friends from high school who grew up Mormon. Um, but I think that her experience, probably a lot of folks can relate to was really disturbed by the fact that she, uh, was, you know, the day before her wedding, sex was a horrible thing that was so shameful and would ruin her life if she even thought about it. And then the next day she's supposed to be having sex all the time with her husband. And it, if we attach such moral weight and shame to it, like she just felt this incredible disconnect connect and felt so dirty and gross having sex with her husband. That's supposed to be okay. So it's just, unfortunately connecting shame with sex in the way that so many evangelical Christians do or Christians in general, I think it really sets us up for an inability to have complex discussions about sexuality from, you know, all kinds. We, it, it, it really solidifies 
it, it reflects a lack of imagination about what healthy sex can be in any context, gay, straight, whatever. Yeah. This, this gets me to one of my, uh, my convictions that needs empirical testing done. So maybe you got some ideas, Fred, on how we can run some empirical tests to show what I'm about ready to say. The majority of people who are not affirming on queer issues also don't like talking about sex. At least that's my experience. So the, the more like, let me put it like this, the more comfortable a person is talking about sex in general, the more likely they are to be affirming. The less comfortable a person is talking about just sex in general, good, bad, whatever, the the less comfortable they are of, or less likely they are to be affirming. Yeah. That's what I found. And I'd love to see somebody do an empirical study on that to see if I'm right about it. That's interesting. So funny. Yeah. I mean, my parents are 87 and 88 and they're coming to this DOC church with me and, you know, we're having a pride Sunday this coming Sunday, pride month, all that. And that's why I want to get this interview in this month as well. And, uh, and they've always just been super loving people, but like just yes, a uh, couple of days ago on father's day, we were all together and my sister, I have three younger sisters and we were all talking about it and they were somehow they got off on when Fred talked about sex at church, <laughs> mom <would> get all <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like my, those are my mom's least favorite messages that I ever did. <laughs> you know? And I got to say, I mean, <laughs> if you need an incentive to become affirming, uh, if Tom's uh, hypothesis is right, that the more affirming you are, the more comfortable you are talking about sex. We know the more comfortable you are talking about sex, the better sex you're having. So if you want a better sex life, become affirming. There you go. We need to bottle this up and sell it. Here's I'm going to do every other podcast on sex now. That's how this is going to go. I love it. <laughs> you know, that's funny. That that also reminds me, Tom, of, I mean, it's just a throwaway, but a real litmus test, I think, which, uh, Fred, you did uh, pass. <laughs> but um, a real litmus test for me for when I'm talking to someone about queer issues Um if they stumble over saying LGBTQ, I know they're not thinking about this issue very much. It's a real sort of <laughs> tipping point for me of like, oh, interesting. I, I, I'm I, curious to see what you say. But if you feel like you can say, I mean, not to make everyone self-conscious now, they're going to trip over your words. But I feel like if you can say LGBTQ, you know, someone and roll someone off the tongue, that means that you're committed to talking about these issues and you probably have queer friends. You know, this isn't a foreign concept to you. Yep. There's yeah. phrases well, and words, aren't there? I've done mm -hmm. a ton of interviews with the best indie musicians in Kansas city. Many of them grew up in churches, started singing in churches, have left the church. And many of them are in the LGBTQ plus community. And yeah. I've interviewed most of them in Kansas city. Right. And they become cool friends. And because my church is open and affirming, they are there. I don't have a worship leader because it's a small church. We don't have a budget. So, but they're rotating in, even though they have not been in church, they're rotating in and leading music in my church, which has really been fun, you know, to, to uh, yeah. To, and to where it integrates with who they are now. It's not like we're, uh, it's just, this has been a fun experiment for me to pastor a new smaller church. That's, you know, really trying to reach out to a diverse community of people, including the recovery world, mm. I've been in the recovery world as well. And that's been an interesting world as well. But that's another. I, this thought. is one of the reasons why I think we need 
a new way to think about theology. Mm. I think so often people who are not affirming have a rigid view of God, a God who has all these moral do's and don'ts, who's going to send you to hell if you don't, you know, say the right words and get on team Jesus. And when people who grow up in those kind of backgrounds then come out of the closet, become artists, and then learn how to think uh, in more gray areas, we'll say, and more flexibility. They, they think the only option when they do theology is back to that strict, stri- uh, stringent, omnipotent God who's got all these rules. And um, as you know, Fred, I've got a different way of thinking about God that I think is much more applicable to uh, the kind of world we live in. Yeah, yeah. You and Richard Rohr helping, uh, helping my faith get off the ventilator. That's what I say. So anyway, <laughs> all right. So um, let's, let's talk. Uh, I don't want to dive too deep on this, but just, you know, good hearted evangelical people who believe in God's love and grace. Well, I noticed when I sat down with them and they, they still, they still think in their head, the Bible teaches that this is wrong. Right. And so if I, if I can give them some, some good little biblical ideas that maybe help them think through that again, that it it helps them turn the corner. So I want to take a moment and do that. Not, not go too super deep, but you know, if you think about the, you know, what, uh, what is it Colby who talks about the, the clobber passages? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you think about those clobber passages, I mean, you got Romans one with Paul, You've got the Sodom and Gomorrah story in Genesis, and you've got the Leviticus sexual stuff, Leviticus 18, 19. I mean, those are the key ones, don't you think, Tom? Yep. yep. And let's let's just talk about that for a minute. Paul in Romans 1, the whole New Testament, that's really the only spot in the whole of the New Testament, in my mind, that really would make you think that this is wrong, right? Yeah, there's some there's a few instances in which words have been sometimes translated in ways that sound like they're referring to uh, queer issues. But right. the really only serious discussion in these few verses in Romans is, yeah. Is yeah. Bad. And so what are the options there if it's not a condemnation of, um, uh, you know, gay sex? What 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 is it? What's the options? Well, I think the best way scholars have addressed this in a variety of ways, and I've got some of those uh, ways I think are more helpful than others. The most helpful, I think, is to focus on Paul's argument about what is natural and unnatural. So the text says something like women exchanged what was natural relations for unnatural and men did the same. And so that has been interpreted as, you know, exchanging uh, opposite sex or heterosexual sexual activity for same-sex behavior, same-sex sexual activity. Um, But a lot of it hinges on what we mean by natural. Now, the folks who are not affirming will say, look, penises go in vaginas. That's how reproduction happens. So obviously that's natural. What they often don't know are, are a couple of things. One is that the same word that Paul uses there to talk about natural is a word he uses when he says elsewhere that it's unnatural for men to have long hair. Well, in our culture today, we don't think that's unnatural. We think that's just a cultural preference. 
So is it the case then that there's a cultural preference at play for Paul? Does Paul think that, you know, there's something going on there that's very culturally based? So that's one way to go at things. Another way is to talk about what Paul may have um, thought was uh, the kind of unnatural behavior of his time. So people will talk about older men having younger boys as sexual partners, but also those same men having younger boys being in a married to women. So they, they, uh, they were either by, or this was some sort of a way, a cultural expression for men and younger boys. And that's what Paul was condemning. Those are probably the two major responses from uh, affirming people to those kinds of passages in Romans. I could give you some others, but those are the, probably the two major ones. You know, and then I, I would say the third, if I added one, would be the temple prostitution <clears throat> stuff. Sure. Yep. No, um, that's the, the fertility cults. Um, and Paul typically, you know, like, no, there's nothing wrong with meats offered to idols. If, if you're not going to the pagan temple to get it, if it's outside in the marketplace away from the temple, it's no big deal. Right. But if you're going to the temple to do the, <laughs> but anyway, you know, I was translating a passage from an Akkadian text. This had been 250 BC, 2500 BC. And I, I stumbled across a text that was talking about the temple prostitution practices and it, it had trans, it, there were trans prostitutes at the temple. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I ended up running it. This was when I was at Midwestern Tom and I ran it by all of my students and my professor. I say, have you seen this? <laughs> this, yeah. this trans stuff has been going on a long time, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that argument would be more common in the Corinthians passage, given the, mm -hmm. the, the church in Corinth and the prostitution uh, practices in the uh, religious um in the religious mm -hmm. culture of the time. Yeah. I, 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 since you brought up that one, let me throw in a fourth. Could be Leviticus <laughs> too though, right? Sure. Leviticus. Could be the context yeah. for Leviticus as well. Yeah. I think the Leviticus one, at least this biblical scholars I read will usually say the primary motive for uh, them being against men lying with men was the high priority of reproduction at the time. Yeah. yeah. It was wasting like, of seed. Yeah. There's a you, big issue about wasting seed. Well, and, all of that. Yeah. The family's history, the ability to thrive was based upon having kids. I mean, that was super important. Right. And so, you know, men having sex with men wasn't going to result in reproduction. So that's right. a bad thing. Um, Same way with Oni. You mean when he spilt a seed on the ground. Right. Yeah. And I was taught that yeah. was why you shouldn't masturbate. <laughs> I was like, damn, One other I was always, I was always looking for the loophole for master. <laughs> so, come on, man. <laughs> One other thing going back to the Romans though, before we look at the other two that I would be remiss if I didn't mention, because my biblical scholar friends would say, Tom, you forgot a key point. Um, they would say, if you read the entire context of the Romans passage, what Paul is ultimately pointing toward is the problem of idolatry. And so what's idolatrous of men lying with men, women lying with women is the motive for doing that. It could be, my biblical scholars would say, that a person's motive for same-sex relations wouldn't be idolatry. It could be mutual love, and therefore it wouldn't be excluded by that passage. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, we're yeah. getting nerdy all of a sudden. Yeah, I know. But that. then the Sodom, <laughs> then the Sodom and Gomorrah passage really is about rape and inhospitality, right? Yeah. Exclusion. I mean, it's it's really. Not. So I think the best story to 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 compare that one to is at the end of Judges, in which there's the same scenario. A foreigner comes into a city. The mm-hmm. men of the city want to rape the foreigner, but this person gives his bride to them. They rape and kill her. So it's a matter of inhospitality, not so much uh, homosexual lust or something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. All right. Yeah. There's some Sorry tough to bring it down or into it. <laughs> uh, no. Well, the, I think one or before we leave the biblical thing, one other thought too is just the movement within scripture itself, uh, sometimes yeah. on issues. Um, you know, uh, there was a book that came out years ago called Women, Slaves, and Homosexuals. I don't know uh, that or not, Tom. Is no, but I can web. see where it's going. <laughs> but he, it was interesting because he argued that, like, if you go from you know, Hebrew Bible to New Testament, there's some movement on the women issue. If you go from the Hebrew Bible to the New Testament, there's some movement on the slave issue. But if you go from the Hebrew Bible to the New Testament, there's not much movement on the homosexual issue. So then he, this was how his uh, interpretive lens uh, tried to still say, so homosexuality is still sin. But um, I, Let th- me give I think you the three, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I just think that the general movement of if you trace the kingdom of God or the the divine commonwealth of God as as our friend uh, John Cobb likes to say, yeah, is toward a loving, a more loving, a, a grace based ethic, right? Yeah, I agree. I and agree. I think even our friend John Calvin made a distinction between moral law, like the Ten Commandments in the Old Test in the Hebrew Bible, and purity law, ceremonial law, which Jesus seemed to undo a lot of that in his teaching, you know? Yes. So, yeah. So there's a lot of options for people to think through this, to help them move to an affirming position, even if they still value the Bible. Yeah. That's, that's our big point here, right? For those who still really value the Bible, really care about what the Bible teach, really want to live a biblical life. There's still plenty of room to wind up uh, with a loving, affirming embrace of the LGBTQ plus people. Yeah. I, I think the way I would, I generally go about this, Fred, is I generally appeal to my listeners, uh, my listeners uh, rejection of some biblical ideas. So maybe I'll start with the old Testament and say, you know, there's a passage that says you shouldn't wear clothing made of two different kinds of fabrics, but you're breaking that commandment this very moment. There's a passage that says you shouldn't eat pork or, or shrimp. There's a passage in the new Testament that says women should keep silent in church, you know, and I'll start listing all these things. And, you know, I don't know of anybody who wants to embrace all of them as relevant today. And so as soon as I get them to agree that maybe some of those things were culturally based, then the door opens for me to talk about queer issues. And then the question is, okay, what's going to be to use the fancy words, our hermeneutical tool, What's our hermeneutical framework? How are we going to interpret the Bible? And here I want to say the issues of love are my hermeneutical key. And love means not just accepting anything. Love means what is promoting well-being? What's healthy? 
And I think there are plenty of queer, same-sex or queer relationships, same-sex sexuality uh, behaviors that are healthy, not unhealthy. Yeah. So I, the the last uh, thing I wanted to jump into is science. But before we get to the science part, because there's a few articles that bring out some interesting things about science as well. Um, before we get to that, I'm curious. Um, if you're willing to talk about this, Alexa, like your, your journey, uh, you, at the beginning of the podcast, I think you identified as queer and you grew up in a, in a home in a Nazarene home with a Nazarene ordained elder. <laughs> so, like, yep. yeah, so, and here you are loving each other and, uh, and your dad <laughs> affirming, which is a beautiful thing. Like you've heard enough horror stories, right? Uh, yeah, to know how, how precious that is, isn't uh, talk about your experience. Like when, when did you first start thinking about your sexuality and your orientation? If you use that language and how, and your conversation with your dad and your relationship and how was it easy for you to, to, to move in and to openly talk about that with your parents, uh, have you always felt affirmed by them? I, I, I don't want to dig too much, but whatever you're. <laughs> yeah, sure. Curious your experience with your with your parents. Yeah, yeah. As I sort of touched on earlier, I was really lucky in that my parents were affirming my whole life. And so I I never really had to have this big sort of reckoning. Um, and because of that, because my parents were already affirming from my entire life, there, there was always sort of an option. Like my parents were careful to sort of say, Oh, whoever you marry, or, you know, if you get married, et cetera. And to always left room for us growing up to identify as whatever, you know, it was less of like, Oh yes, we will be affirming if you come out as queer, but we assume you're heterosexual. That was never the tone. You know, it was just sort of like, well, you'll, you love who you love. And I guess when you grow up, you'll let us know or whatever. And because of that, um, that sort of didn't require a sort of big, what you think of in the movies of like this big coming out process, you know? And I think that, that, that sort of uh, coming out as sort of a big announcement doesn't always feel, doesn't always resonate with all queer folks as, as relevant to them, you know? And I feel that way for me because it, if there's nothing to announce, there's not really that event. You know what I mean? It was just like, well, yep. Hey, uh, we just, you know, in sort of talking about, um, Oh, this person is, you know, Oh, look at that cute girl on the, on the street or whatever, you know, just sort of came up casually in conversation. There was always space for it. Um, which was really wonderful to grow up that way. Um, and I think <laughs> I had a harder time telling, I mean, uh, telling my parents I wasn't a Christian, than, <laughs> uh, which I mean, understandably, they obviously are very committed to this. And I think that that has been more of the journey for my parents and I, as far as, uh, you know, becoming, become delving into a new relationship as we're both adults now. I think that that um, is just part of the journey of any parent child relationship. And seeing in each other uh, the way that we each want to live our lives and the commitments and values we hold and how those really do overlap in so many ways. And, and even though we don't put the same label on it or maybe add some of the addenda aren't the same, uh, we're still really aligned. And so, so yes, I'm lucky in that my family and I have always really 
been committed to each other and uh, been alongside each other for the journey. Mm. And did this motivate you into your current field of expertise at Columbia University? You're a professor <laughs> in gender studies. <laughs> That- I'm not a professor. Oh. What are you I, my work in Columbia is, is actually completely unrelated to this. I work in student oh. affairs, so it's like um, uh-huh. student programming and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I mean, that's also pretty, I obviously have been a pretty vocal feminist from a young age. And so, you know, so are my, is the rest of my family. And so it was always pretty clear that I was interested in talking about these things. And so then when I went to grad school for gender studies, it just felt, I, I never felt like I needed to, uh, hide my interests or couch my interests, you know, it was always just really supported. And it's also been a nice sort of learning opportunity for all of us that I think that everybody is trying to do their best to be the most loving and to act and speak in ways that are the most welcoming. I mean, I guess I would hope so. Um, and, part of going to grad school and being really interested in these issues, an effect of that was me gaining some degree of expertise on, uh, you know, the types of language and, uh, and ideas that are sort of the queer community is interested in and committed to. And my family has really been, uh, really open to entering those conversations together. And we've, we've developed sort of a, a good open communication about, okay, well, we want to talk about these issues and maybe Alexa knows the technical terms. And so it's nice to learn from that, but also it's not a dynamic of shaming or like tisk tisk, you know, like I understand that where our everyone's heart is. And if I can share information about, Oh, actually people prefer to, if this other term, I think that could be useful. Mm-hmm. Would you say Tom, that's accurate. <laughs> I'm characterizing our relationship would, here. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say that, you know, this is thanks Fred for, is having a forum for us to talk about some of these things because we talk <laughs> about them, but maybe not always in the specificity. At least what I'm about to say, maybe I I haven't said this to Alexa in the past the way I'm going to say it now. Um, you know, I am a person who's trying to follow Jesus and live a life of love. And so being a Christian is important to me. So obviously, I would love for my daughter to also be a Christian. But what's more important to me than being a Christian, and the reason I think I am a Christian or try to follow Jesus, is to live that life of love, which she's also committed to. So maybe I could put it this way. If I had to choose between my daughter being a Christian or her living a life of love, I'd go living a life of love over being a Christian. For me, being a Christian is kind of a means to the end of love, and for her, it's not. So we share what's, I think, the most fundamental commitment, even though there are some other commitments that I find valuable that she doesn't share. Mm. Is that fair? And I actually, I'd I'd add to that, that you see Christianity as a means, as your means to the end of love. And I, I think that is a valid means, you know, and I, even though I'm not religious, I still really value, hence why I'm part of this project is because this community that I, you know, I'm sort of tangentially related to, I still think deserves uh, my time and effort to, to bring it, you know, to where I would hope it would be. So my, my means to that end of love is different, but I still feel like, you know, we both really respect each other's, uh, ways to getting to being a loving person. And me being a theologian, Fred, when I hear my daughter talk, when she says things like, I'm not religious, but I try to love, 
I think to myself, well, you really are religious. You just don't realize <laughs> <laughs> that true religion, as Jesus said, is loving the orphans and yada, yada, yada. So <laughs> like I translate those things in my head in my own kind of way. I'm sure she's heard you say that before, too. I'm just yeah. asking. <laughs> Yeah, my new favorite verse for those who do believe in God, you know, God is love. First John 4, 16, God is love. Those who live in love live in God and God lives in them. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's where I, that's where it's at these days. <laughs> me too. Now, I want to be careful not to impose that on Alexa, because like sure. I've, I've sometimes had Christians say to atheists, well, you're really, you know, a Christian. You just don't have the right language. And that kind of seemed condescending and maybe imperialistic or in some way. And I don't want to come across <laughs> that to Alexa. But I have to admit, in my mind, I kind of translate some of what she says. And I think to myself, we really were probably on the same page, even though she might use different language. Yeah, that's fine by me. I feel like that. I feel like I do similar things, not to you, but maybe in other conversations about if someone is saying, for instance, feminism, I think people have lots of different definitions of feminism, much like people have lots of different definitions of God and of religion. And I am interpreting someone else's statement about, you know, whatever thing into, oh, well, I would call that feminist. You know, not everyone would agree with that interpretation, but that's, you know, it, what the translation yeah. of your own brain, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and uh, what's key also there is that in, in Tom sort of, you know, mentally translating and he would probably put it in the category of, of religious or spiritual. I don't feel pressured at all to be, you know, it's, it's not imposing that upon me, you know? So I think that's the key. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. You feel that. In my uh, whole deconstruction, I really felt like an atheist and thought seriously about being one. It just didn't feel like it ever fit for me, but, uh, I mean, in these last few years, actually, for me. And uh, but um, it's it's really I, I do several groups where we just do spiritual support and, and mindfulness meditation. I'm in a two year training with uh, Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield on uh, mindfulness meditation. And there's just mm -hmm. a lot of really good research about the benefits of that. And it comes out of the Buddhist tradition, but it's kind of a Western version of it. So um, but that's been a fascinating thing to dive into that world a little bit and and uh there there's so much good overlap when you just talk about love and uh and yeah. you know um yeah so and and lots of times when i talk to my atheist friends about all this stuff which we do um when they give me all the reasons why they're an atheist i'm like going yeah i kind of agree with all those reasons but you know, yeah. but, then I don't, but then i still <laughs> hang on to the god thing you know but uh but anyway, um, well, hey, I, uh, gosh, science, let's just chat just a quick bit about science, because I think even this opens up some things a little bit. For example, like the chromosome issue. Um, there's a couple of articles in your book that bring out how complex chromosomes are. You, you, I used to just think it was so simple. Oh, you're either male or female. And then if somebody's yeah. born with two genitals, well, you go back to the chromosomes and it'll tell you if it's male or female, and then you direct them that way. But it isn't that simple. So you throw in the complexity of chromosomes with the complexity of hormones. And then if you even go to the natural world, like the, the, you know, the animal kingdom, it's not, always, it's not even 
necessarily clear cut there either. Right. In terms of practices, uh, sexual practices and in, in the other parts of the creation. So talk a, just a quick bit about science and then we'll end with with love. How's that? But the science thing is interesting to me, too, because it it opens it's way more complex than we might think. What do you, yeah, I'll, what do you I'll do. Sure. I'll take a quick little uh, detour into uh, sort of the gender studies aspect of here, um, which yes, as you talked about, I think, I think talking about what it, what it means to be intersex is at such a level of nuance that I think so many people uh, are unaware of. And intersex is somebody who, you know, for whatever uh, uh, reason doesn't, doesn't neatly fit into what we think of as male and female. And so what I wanted to talk about here actually briefly is I'm sure that many people have sort of heard that sex and gender are not the same things. And uh, what exactly that means is complicated. (laughs) But what I wanted to highlight here is that what, what scientifically we define as sex, there are five like types of sexual characteristics. There are genitalia, gonads, which are your uh, testes or ovaries, gametes, which is sperm or eggs. Uh, let's see if I can get them all <laughs> chromosomes, obviously. And then last hormones. So not only could your chromosomes be XXY, one X, XYY, all these sort of different variations, you could have XX chromosomes and still have testes or, and still be producing, um, testosterone. You know, you could have all these sort of differentiations, different combinations of your different sex characteristics. So the way that we are made as people already just does not fit into this binary of sex of male and female. Then you bring gender on top of it, sexual orientation on top of it. Like it's obviously very complex. And I think that so often in this conversation, we fail to look to experts for their scientific and also like theoretical, and we're talking about gender knowledge about these types of things. And it's just not what you're taught in school because we, there's so much more that I think is important to really understand God's creation. Help, help me real quickly. Cause um, so sure. you made a couple of, and I know don't, we're, we're running out of time, but we don't want to get too deep here, but so what would be the difference between sex, gender, and what was the third thing that you just said there? Um, anyway, I mean, mostly just sex and gender. So sex is focused on your biology. Okay. And the the sort of traditional thing is sex is biological. Gender is is cultural or sociological. However, it's not even that uh, clearly defined black and white because they do cross over and affect each other. Obviously, sex affects gender in that we associate breasts with being a woman. And what does that mean? That means raising kids. That means being nurturing. So all the things that means wearing dresses, all these things that are sort of outward cultural understandings of what it means to be a woman is influenced by uh, having you know your, bio, your biology, if that makes sense. So it also goes the other way in that gender affects how we define sex. That seems like, how can that be true? Sex is something that's physical. How can our sociology impact here? It's because we are deciding where we draw those lines in sex to be male and female. And a really great understanding or a a thing to think about this is an example is um, intersex babies, when they're born, very, very often are 
go undergo forced non-consensual surgery as infants to change their genitalia into clearly away from ambiguous into clear, you know, uh, vulva or penis. When that decision is being made, there's this uh, a very interesting gra- graph that shows so the clitoris, if it is over a certain size, then um, the, that will either be turned into a penis or if it's under the side, no, that should stay as a clitoris and it will be a, a girl. Um, there's a very interesting study that shows that if the clitoris is over, let's say one centimeter, the, uh, the doctors will call that a penis. However, the, the length that it needs to be determined as a penis for the parents is much smaller. If the parents see the tiniest hint of a clitoris, they think that is a penis. It is long enough. That's going to be a male. So the way that our cultural understandings of genitalia and of whether or not it's better to be a man or a woman and what it means to have any sort of large genitalia is influencing how we determine this sexual characteristic into the bucket of male or female. So a bit of a detour. I hope that you're intrigued by this. I'm fascinated into by gender that, studies. Actually. So fascinating. Oh my gosh. Well, um, is it, is it appropriate to talk about sex fluidity and gender fluidity? Is that bad language? Sure. Or it, I wouldn't, it just, I, I, I wouldn't hear the term me. sex fluidity, but yeah, carry on. Well, I just like if the chromosomes are way more complicated than we ever realize, and the hormones on top of that are way more complicated than we ever realize, it creates a, a, a fluid kind of environment, even biologically. Mm-hmm. That uh, mm-hmm, let me make a case then, for sex fluidity. Can I do and, that? And then gender fluidity as well. And then let's just not get hung up about it. Let's love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's, that's where I I'm at right now. <laughs> I think it's pretty easy to make a case for gender fluidity because yeah. we usually think of gender gender as uh, very highly influenced by environmental factors, et cetera, et cetera, culture. But here's my case, Alexa, for, for um, sexual fluidity. There's a recent paper done by a biologist and philosopher who look at environmental factors related to whether or not fish end up taking female or male um, actions in reproduction. And this paper shows that it's environmental factors that determine whether the fish will end up being the female or the male. And then they show how how uh, fertilized eggs can be manipulated such that um, the um, resulting um, individual is either male or female which I think is really important for the little kind of aside you said earlier, uh, Lex, about God given or something like that, (laughs) because so many people (laughs) have said, oh, well, God decides whether you're male, female, or if they're enlightened, God decide your intersex, God decide whatever your chromosomes are, God makes all these decisions. But there's so much evidence to suggest that there's environmental factors that play a role. And while I'm not dismissing divine action, I believe in God, I think we need to decide, need to say there are a variety of forces, factors, actors, in addition to God, that go into sex and gender. What do you think of that, Alexa? Yeah, I'll concur with that. I was not balking at the concept of sex fluidity. I just was oh, going to say that's oh. not necessarily a term that is, is oh, okay. I feel like gender fluid is more of a term, but sex fluidity, it's not a bad term. It's just not, I don't know what we would call it. Not in <laughs> sexual diversity. Academia is yeah. not using that term, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Oh man, I could talk to you guys all day about this. <laughs> guys and gals. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Us, us, us gender fluid people. All right. So anyway, <laughs> I have this, I have this dream Fred, of doing a lecture in front of a whole bunch of pastors in my denomination and having a PowerPoint slide that shows a wide variety of genitalia in length and size and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> it would totally, you know, make some people squeamish but then <laughs> say, uh, look, this is the biology. You can't deny what you're seeing right here. Now imagine that this also applies to gender and say there's fluidity here. There's, there's diversity, et cetera. I think even though that it would gross some people out to see all the genitalia on the screen, I think that would help them to come closer to getting rid of this strong binary views of things. Oh, mm -hmm. all right. Invite me, Tom, and I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll be in the amen for you. You like in the black church, preach on brother, preach on, you know? So anyway. <laughs> all right. Well, we've, we've run out of time, but this is, this is amazing. I want to encourage everybody pride month. This will come out. Uh, you'll be hearing this as we do it. So the book, uh, which I would just say why the church should be <laughs> fully LGBTQ plus affirming. Thank you, Alexa. What a delight. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. I might, uh, you, you never know when I start getting to know people, I just, uh, I keep bugging them. So anyway, you never know. You might. <laughs> Maybe but, I'll beat uh, Tom's record. <laughs> <laughs> oh Yeah. Yeah, we could come back and do a whole deal on gender stuff. That would be fun, actually. <laughs> well, um, Tom, thanks so much again. Alexa, thank you. And um, yeah, and you have, is it two other sisters, right, Alexa? Yes, is I'm that... in the middle. Yep. Okay, yeah. So uh, a shout out to your your whole family. I'd, I, I'd love, to, <laughs> love to meet the others. Uh, it sounds like a beautiful family. Thankful for... <laughs> Thanks for you putting this out there. I know Tom will take probably more hits than maybe you do, Alexa, for this. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, thanks for the courage to do this, Tom. I think it's a needed message. And I I think you're, we're on the right side of history trying to bring this to the forefront. I think give another cup, another generation. And uh, yeah, we'll see even bigger changes in the church, you know? So yeah, yeah I think you're right. I, I really do. And love's the key, right? Yep. Press into love. We all agree on that one. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures. And I uh, hope to see you next time. Take care. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com and make a one-time donation, or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.